I'm Kate Daniels. Mental health is obviously fundamental to our overall health and well-being, and yet we know we have so many issues surrounding this, from stigmas for persons with this diagnosis to sufficient care to overall understanding, and we can see it in the homeless population on our streets. What to do? How about greater awareness and education? Ashley Fontaine is Executive Director of NAMI Seattle. NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're going to meet her now. Ashley Fontaine, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Happy to be here. And I am so grateful for the work that you do and for the work that NAMI, I'm pronouncing that right, isn't it? NAMI? Yes. Well, I always say we'll answer to anything. Some people say NAMI, some people say NAMI. I tend to say NAMI. NAMI. Okay, so it's NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Huge organization, such a critically important organization, because as we will converse about this over the next half hour, our listeners are going to hear how really mental illness has a a factor in so much of our daily life. And one of the problems is that we don't want to talk about it. And that's why we are talking about it this morning. Right, Ashley? Yes, most yeah. definitely. It's something that uh, there's been a stigma about. And it still seems to be carrying on. But do you think it's lessening at all? Yeah, you know, I have worked with NAMI in Seattle for the last three years. And I was at NAMI Chicago for about four years before that. And I'll say even from the time that I began working at NAMI to now, I definitely have seen some changes. You know, of course, stigma and discrimination are still there, but especially with some more celebrities coming out and talking about their experience with mental health conditions, I think that that has sort of had a snowball effect a little bit where it has helped normalize it for other people, too. And that's what we want to do is to just really realize just how much it affects people and that there are so many ways that we can help each other out and help people to live as, uh, quote, normal and productive a life as possible. But we need to all be in this together and not stigmatize or ostracize people. Yeah, exactly. So one of the big things is getting the health care and attention to mental health care. I know over the years it's been something like, okay, someone can get 12 visits a year. Well, that is ridiculous when someone has a serious illness. If you had cancer, you wouldn't be limited to 12 visits a year, correct? Right. We would hope, right? You would get as much treatment as you needed until you were well. Exactly. And that's what happened with the Affordable Care Act. Didn't we then see that we were getting more opportunity for mental health care? Yeah. So actually, a mental health parity law passed back in 2008, but it wasn't really until the implementation of the Affordable Care Act when there was actually some teeth to it. So there, it was part of the 10 essential benefits, um, meaning that basically insurance companies were required to include mental health treatment coverage and it needed to match physical treatment coverage. Um, You know, basically they need to be equal, not just on paper in terms of parity law, but really in practice. And so that has been really significant, hasn't it? Have you had actual experience with people finding that they were able to get the treatment and have the visits that they needed? Yeah, you know, we have heard from a lot of people that 
when they had insurance previously, but they were limited to, you know, we'll say 12 visits a year even can be generous under some plans. Sometimes people are restricted to as few as eight or 10 visits per year. And so when we're talking about even less than one visit per month, that becomes really challenging, right? When we're dealing with a chronic mental health condition. Um, So that definitely has been improved for people under the Affordable Care Act. One of the things that was not really made better by the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, is reimbursement rates under Medicaid and Medicare. And so you will find that a lot of psychiatrists in particular do not take any insurance in any insurance at all, um, in particular Medicaid and Medicare, because the reimbursement rates are so very low. But even, you know, regular marketplace insurance, like some of the big names that everybody recognizes, there are um, providers who won't bill them or they expect their patients basically to bill their own insurance, which is about as silly as it sounds, right? If you're going in for help for a chronic mental health condition, the likelihood that you are able to sort of balance all of that and pay money up front and then hope that your insurance company reimburses you is pretty low, right? Or if you're able to do it when you start, it might not be something that you can maintain for very long. Precisely. And so it's been an issue, it's gotten slightly better, and yet uh, with the threat of this rollback of the Affordable Care Act, what do you think, what do you feel is going to happen? Yeah, well, there's actually been some um, good, well, not so good, really, (laughs) pieces of information that have come out now that the plan and proposal has been out for a little bit. Um, Basically, the American Health Care Act, which is being referred to as the AHCA, was passed on May 4th by the House, and it basically cuts $800 billion, with a B, from Medicaid over the next 10 years, and that's going to cause really vital mental health services to be slashed. Um, in Washington State alone, 600,000 people are covered under the Medicaid expansion that our state chose to participate in. This is so significant. It's, I don't know that we can even underscore it strongly enough how critical this is. If we have good health coverage, we're so fortunate. But think about that, 600,000 people. I mean, even if it were 1,000 people that were going to not have it, but to think of this astronomical number, that is, it, it, doesn't it feel criminal? Yes, very. Well, and so the Congressional Budget Office estimates that 24 million people are going to lose insurance for mental health care nationwide. And the stats are that one in three people who are covered by Medicaid expansion lives with a mental health or substance use condition. So we're looking at, you know, basically the unraveling of Medicaid expansion, which has been crucial for people who have mental health conditions or substance use conditions or both because they unfortunately frequently go hand in hand will lose their coverage under Medicaid expansion. And, you know, one of the frustrating pieces about that is it's really looking at our healthcare budget as a country sort of in a silo, right? As if our health and what we spend on it doesn't influence other areas of spending like education or incarceration. Um, But the reality is that it does. Precisely. And beyond that, it just affects the quality of life of all of us. Take, for instance, how so many of the people here in our Puget Sound area, we see so many homeless. Aren't a great number of those folks uh, who are homeless suffering with mental illness? Yeah, there's a pretty high co-occurrence. You know, there's some different studies that cite different numbers. The one I hear most frequently is that 
if someone is experiencing homelessness, there's often a, basically a 70% chance that they are also living with a mental health or substance use condition. So there's definitely a high correlation between the two. And that's where we see that kind of thing. It's not a silo. It's not that over there. It all weaves in together. We are all impacted by this occurrence. Absolutely. Right. So one of the things, and we're not going to get really political about this, but (laughs) if this really touches our hearts and minds and souls, we know what we need to do. We call our legislators about it, don't we? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yes. So that is, I think, one of the very key things that we're looking at in terms of mental health, mental illness, and and what is going on. And, And I think perhaps one way that... All of us can really uh, make a difference if we are looking for a way to be involved. You uh, do have membership, so people can find ways to volunteer and and become really active and and a strong voice, right? Yeah, exactly. So NAMI is a membership organization. I'm the executive director of NAMI Seattle, but we have 23 other affiliates across the state. So no matter where you live in Washington, there is an affiliate locally to you that you can get involved with. And the great thing about being a member of NAMI is that we are local in your community that you live in. We also have a state office that really focuses on state level legislation. And then we have, you know, the N in NAMI stands for national. So our big national organization does a lot of federal level lobbying and, you know, pushing for stuff like healthcare reform, which, you know, they did manage to get passed last year. And now, We really need to make sure that there's some money attached to it so that those changes that we were so hard won actually come into being in real life with dollars attached. Um, But membership in NAMI means that all of our members get legislative updates, they get action alerts. So if mental health is something that is a particular passion to people who are listening, it's a great way to get, you know, really quick ways to get plugged in and be an advocate. And how do we go about doing that, Ashley? Um, anybody who wants to join NAMI can go to nami.org slash join, and it'll take you straight to the membership page, and it gives you an option to choose what your closest city affiliate is. Great. So we'll mention that again, because I think that that's really so critical. But there's another more, um, well, a fun kind of thing and more imminent coming up uh, in just uh, the the week ahead. On the weekend, we have a chance to gather together and uh, get some exercise and have some fun. So tell us about the walk that's going to happen. Yeah, so the NAMI walk is coming up on Saturday, June 3rd. Uh, We host that over at Kirkland Marina Park in Kirkland. It's a beautiful location. We've had stunning weather for the last couple of years. Hopefully I'm not jinxing us right now. (laughs) And we'll have good weather again this year. Um, It's a 5K. It's really meant to be very inclusive, though. So, you know, we have a halfway turnaround point. So if you're only feeling up to a mile and a half, no need to worry. We can kind of adapt it for all skill and ability levels. Um, And this this is our biggest awareness raising event of the year. Last year, I think we had over about 1,500 people. And, you know, of course, every year we're trying to make it bigger and better. So we really encourage people to come. It's great for families to come and participate. You know, dogs who are well-behaved are welcome. Children are welcome. We have face painters and music. And, you know, it's just a really fun day to raise awareness about mental health and also celebrate people who are in recovery. And so 
we can't underscore that enough of how this awareness is so important because no doubt each one of us knows someone, either a family member or a friend, a co-worker, uh, a co-worker's family. It's really uh, like one degree of separation, I would guess. I don't know that yeah. factually. But we really do know that it is so uh, in, what present in our society. We need to become aware and understand so that we can be part of the solution, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why we love having this event because it's a really easy entry point. You know, earlier we were talking about stigma and how challenging it is to sort of end stigma around mental health issues. And that's one of the goals of this event is that it's a very easy entry point. It's not intimidating at all. It's really welcoming for everybody. And so that's our hope with the NAMI Walk is that, you know, it's kind of a come one, come all neighborhood kind of event. Right. And I would imagine this is also a fundraiser, is it, Ashley? Yes, of yes. course it is. Of course. Yes. <laughs> so it's our biggest fundraising event and our biggest awareness raising event. Um, one of the really interesting and, and inclusive pieces of it is that it is free to register. So we would never want someone to feel like they can't participate due to financial constraints. Um, but people basically make a team and you can fundraise, you know, I, this will be my seventh Tsunami Walk, I think. <laughs> I've been doing it since the very beginning of my NAMI career. Um, and, you know, we send it out to people at your partner's workplace or people that you are in the PTA with. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be you individually giving all of the money. Um, and it's just a really fun, you know, we get a little competitive with it. We have a couple team leaders who have been in the top three for the last few years and want to, you know, maintain their <laughs> their reign of top team captaindom. Um, but yeah, so it's a fundraiser and it's also an awareness raiser and both of those things combined just make for a really great fun day. Exactly. And the thing about the fundraising, of course, funds are needed for so many things, but what is the primary or what are the, the top primary reasons for the funding? What do you use those dollars for? Sure. So one of the things that really is special about NAMI is that all of the programs and services we offer are free to people who need them. So we have support groups. Those are totally free. We offer classes for family members and for people in recovery. Those are also free. And so that's a big piece of what the NAMI Walks funds is basically unrestricted money to keep making sure that we're able to keep all of our support groups and classes and trainings free for people in the community. What this makes me think of is in terms of someone, well, the family is certainly all involved, but the person dealing with the mental illness is, is getting treatment, hopefully, through their medical insurance. But then with support groups, I would imagine then they can come together and find between appointments, if you will, a, an opportunity to connect with other people and find a way to get a, a, a stronger, better footing uh, in their life? Yeah, exactly. And for people who aren't familiar with NAMI, our model is that everything is peer-based. So if you go to a support group and you have bipolar disorder, that group is led by somebody else who has bipolar disorder and is living with bipolar disorder and managing that illness. Um, if you go to a group as a family member, that group is led by another family member who is supporting someone with a mental illness in their own family. And so there's really some kind of magic that happens in that to just be in a community with other people who have very similar experiences. 
and know that you're not by yourself. You know, that's what we hear really frequently from the families that we work with is that, you know, when we first found this out from my family member or, you know, sort of whatever event brought them to our doors in the first place, they often will say things like, we just felt like we had been dropped on this desert island and we didn't know what to do until we met families at NAMI who also had been through similar things and kind of told us all their tricks of the trade and things that have worked well for their family. And then, you know, I felt like I had this roadmap and like I at least knew a little bit about what to do next. That is a, such a powerful feeling for the families and for any indiv- the individual dealing with a mental illness, someone who has been going down that same path. So you don't have to try and explain yourself and people just think that, well, just snap out of it or get over it. Someone yeah. who has that real concrete understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, and we get some very interesting descriptors. Sometimes we'll ask, you know, people who are at groups or who are volunteering on our helpline uh, for some some words that they would use to describe NAMI. And one of my favorite ones from one of our lovely volunteers is a safe haven. And that's really how I like to think of NAMI, you know, regardless of whether it's your own illness or a family member or someone else who's close to you, NAMI is a place that you can go and kind of get whatever guidance you need. Oh, that is so perfect. Safe haven. Uh, that feels like a cocoon. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. How perfect. So this is what NAMI offers. Uh, this is uh, so powerful. It's supportive. It's encouraging. It's uh, it just kind of an answer uh, waiting for you if you're having some sort of challenge, don't know where to turn. So there is a helpline that people can call in and find out when and where they can uh, meet up with someone. Is that right, Ashley? Um, Actually, so our helpline, yes, they can call and find out about support groups, but NAMI Seattle specifically, we have a local helpline that is answered by some of our staff and a lot of our volunteers. And people can call for really any kind of referral information they might need. So sometimes we'll get calls from people who, you know, they're being discharged from the hospital soon and they're looking to connect with a provider when they're back in the community. Or sometimes we get calls specifically about support groups. You know, we take kind of calls of all varieties. So I would say it's not only about our programs and support groups, but also other things that are available in the community, whether that's a therapist or a psychiatrist or You know, people will call us for housing information, um, and we have a lot of resources kind of all over the map in our region. So you're just this wealth of information. So a phone call, but I think probably these days we really look to the Internet a lot. We just hop on our computer and go to NAMI.org, right? Yeah, so NAMI.org will actually take you to our national organization's main website. And so for people who maybe don't live in Seattle and want to find out who their local affiliate is, that's a great place to start. People who are in Seattle or near Seattle, our website is NAMIseattle.org. And we have um, pretty readily accessible information about our support groups and kind of what our programs are and what classes look like and all of that great stuff. Great. So we'll be mentioning that again before we're finished yet this morning, because it's a very important website to check out for so many resources that are going to make our life really be so much better, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So on the downside, though, of what happens with people struggling with mental illness and it's not understood and what happens so often um, on the political or, or political on the police scene is that without that understanding, we have seen some terrible tragedies occur. Can you talk about that for us, Ashley? Yeah, unfortunately, people who live with mental health conditions and who interact with the police are 16 times more likely to be killed during that interaction than the general population. And that's pretty astounding, right? I mean, that's not a number that you would likely expect. And if we were talking about some other health condition, it's not a number that would be acceptable. And I think that we can understand what could happen, but then because a person may, with a mental health condition, mental illness, may be acting erratically, so they're not being understood. What's happening then with police departments to change that? Yeah, so locally we've actually, in the city of Seattle, we've made a lot of strides, specifically the Seattle Police Department, in their CIT training, which stands for Crisis Intervention Team And basically, they train officers for 40 hours on crisis intervention, how to de-escalate a situation, how to talk to someone when they're experiencing a mental health crisis in a way that is not going to escalate them further and hopefully will calm them enough so that they will go with the officer to the hospital or, you know, whatever, the crisis solution center willingly rather than, you know, continuing to have sort of an altercation. Um, Since the Seattle Police Department has implemented that, you know, over this last year, they were estimating that they would have 10,000 calls to 911 about mental health crises, and they were pretty much on track to hit that number. So to see how much their policing has changed since they really implemented some of this stuff is pretty amazing. Um, Because the Seattle Police Department has been working with the Department of Justice since, I think, 2012, on a consent decree around their use of force and all of that stuff, they have gotten down basically their interactions with people who have mental illness or mental health condition. They are having less than 2% of those cases are experiencing a use of force of any kind, which is an absolutely phenomenal drop. I mean, we're talking, this was the police department that had the Department of Justice come in because their use of force was so high right. that they felt they had to come in and mandate that they make corrections and changes in the way they were doing their police work. So to see them be able to use CIT training and de-escalation skills to that level of success where now, you know, only 2% of those calls are use of force at all is really amazing. So why is this not tr- a training that is used in all police forces in all communities across the entire country? Well, some of it is resources. And what I can say for our state is that in 2015, our legislature passed the Doug Ostling Act, which basically mandates eight hours of CIT training for all peace officers across the state. The problem with that is that eight hours is not exactly CIT training. Um, Typically, most CIT training programs are 40 hours. So we're talking a full week where officers are really immersed in the content and they get um, time to do hands-on practice scenarios. So, you know, eight hours is a great start, but it's probably not really the level that we should hope to get to. Eight hours, you know, is better than zero hours, but 40 hours is certainly even better than eight. 
So my hope is that, you know, over time we'll be able to make some changes and have conversations with our legislators about actually adjusting that bill and we'll kind of see where that goes. It's great that it's in place at all. I think that was a really strong kind of grassroots community push from some families that had been impacted by their family member basically being killed during a police interaction when they were in crisis. And they got that pushed through, but there's still a little bit of fine tuning that needs to happen with that. And, you know, as far as other states outside of Washington, a lot of major cities are, are using CIT training and have CIT units, and they're kind of, you know, adapting it depending on the needs of their specific community. And I think that is sort of the good and the bad of CIT training is that CIT is not a one-size-fits-all training. The root of CIT came out of Memphis back in the say late 70s when a man who was in crisis was killed by the police there and the response from the community was outrage and rightfully so. And there was a push within their own police department to say, you know, we have to change the way we're doing this. And they really made it a collaborative process where it wasn't just about changing the way that police officers were doing their job and that the police department was doing things but it really became about how does our community as a whole respond to mental health crisis when someone is not well, is it really sufficient to just call 911 and have the police show up? And so they set up a system where they really involved the providers in their community with police officers. And so it's tough, right? Because it's, you know, that's sort of a long-winded explanation to explain that it's really more than just training. That's sort of the CIT motto is that it's not just training. It's really about the relationships and the collaboration with other pieces of the system and the police department. Exactly. And you have a story of, of a family locally that is connected with <laughs> NAMI that experienced, sadly, this kind of tragedy. Yeah, it was actually just in March. It was still very recent. Um, one of our board members, Jen, her family had called. She has a brother who had schizophrenia and had to have that for quite a number of years. And they called for assistance up in Snohomish County. And unfortunately, it seems like they might've got some responders who were not CIT trained, which always heartbreaking when that happens, especially when you know that this program exists. And unfortunately, when they responded to him, it just continued to escalate and they ended up killing him while they were trying to respond to the family in crisis. So, it's definitely a topic for me personally. I've worked with CIT trained officers since I was back in Chicago for a number of years, and it hits even closer to home. You know, when someone on your own leadership team experiences that same tragic loss that so many other families, unfortunately, have experienced. And it's especially frustrating for us because our board member is actually a volunteer teacher in one of our programs. And so, unfortunately, she really did all of the things that we would recommend a family member do, like, for example, communicate with the 911 operator or dispatcher to say, you know, my family member or whoever I'm calling about has a mental health condition, you know, these are the symptoms, these are things that have helped in the past when they've been in a crisis before, you know, really just trying to give them as much information as possible. And unfortunately, it really kind of highlighted an area that definitely still needs work. And I know that some of our police departments know this and are trying to work on it. But that really is the communication between our dispatch 
people who are answering 911 calls and their ability to relay more detailed information to the officers who are out and responding to calls. So that is a piece of communication that is definitely not really where it needs to be. And it's um, it has proven tricky, not just for our police departments here locally, but, you know, in Chicago, that was something they struggled with too. And so trying to finesse, you know, is it extra training for dispatchers? Is it something else? That's still something that they're trying to tweak and get to a point where it's working really smoothly. And this is where we come in to become more aware find ways that we want to be active and be part of the solution so that no other lives are lost like this. No families are torn apart and and really so much ruined when we could really work together and be educated, be aware, get the funding that is needed. And I think we do that in a number of ways, but one of them uh, would be to get out on this walk on uh, June 3rd, right, Ashley? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, find the awareness there. So once again, the website to get all the information and get active is? They can visit NamiSeattle.org. Or if you'd like to become a member, you can visit nami.org slash join. Perfect. And please do that. We know mental illness and mental health are right next door to us, if not perhaps something that we ourselves are dealing with. Let's help each other be compassionate and understanding. And Ashley, I think you are really a a great role model for this. You are so obviously passionate and active. So thank you so greatly for taking time with us today to give us these important insights. Well, thank you so much.